Hello? All right. What's up, guys? Welcome to Salt Company. My name's Jacob. I'm a resident just like Anders, and this is the last salt of the summer, so get it all in. Soak it all in while you can. I think it's the best salt, actually, because of Wimbledon, and I have a quick Wimbledon story to warm us up here. So I probably three, two or three summers ago, me and my friend Dom, we've been playing quite a bit of tennis. This is back when Wimbledon was actually a tennis tournament, and we've been playing quite a bit in the summer, and we decided this is going to be the year we competed and actually, like, really put our name in the hat for contending for the dub. So we were taking it pretty seriously. We were talking about strategy, all that good stuff, like what to do, if someone had a good serve, if we were playing like ex-tennis players, whatever. We were talking through it all, trying to figure out how we are going to win this thing. And so we show up to the court, and this was probably the one situation we didn't talk about. The guy, one of the guys, was wearing a hot dog costume and had a broken wrist, and the other guy was wearing this like massive referee costume and it was Ryan Hamby and Mikey Stewart. So you guys know them, but they were just like goofing around and I think they were in our heads so bad, we just like crumbled. So God could humble you tonight. God humbled me at Wimbledon, but that could be your story tonight. You might be preaching about it later, who knows? But that's what I'm doing. So like I said, this, was the, uh, this is the last uh, somersault here and uh, we've been going through the book of Philippians and we find ourselves at the end of Philippians. We've seen these themes such as thankfulness, joyfulness, humility, prioritizing Jesus, looking onwards towards heaven, many other things like that. But what's interesting is we actually don't get the reason for the letter of Philippians until the very end of it. And it's actually a thank you letter. So Paul is writing to the Philippians because of the financial support that he received from them. And so just like you probably had to write thank yous for graduation gifts or birthday gifts, um, Paul is essentially writing a thank you letter similarly to how we probably have. Uh, another thing to remember is that Paul has a special relationship with the Philippian people. So he wants to, uh, he's like taking this tone of like just being a friend, like it's very casual, it's very loving, it's, it's not very formal. And he's also trying to like prove this point that he's like, hey, I'm in this relationship with you guys for the glory of Christ, not for the money that you can give me, is what Paul is saying. And Paul is proving that, yeah, he's not in it for the money he can get for ministry, but it's interesting because he's like thanking them for money, but he's saying like, oh, I don't really need it. And it's just really, it's like a bad way to say thank you. Like imagine your grandparents gave you this car going into college and you're like, hey, thanks grandma, thanks grandpa, but I'm probably gonna be like walking around campus. So like I would have been fine either way. That's kind of like the tone that Paul is taking is like, he would be fine either way, with or without the money, but he's thankful for it. And what's even like more awkward about this is that Paul is in prison, so he like actually needed somebody to show up and support him. Epaphroditus comes to uh, just help meet some basic needs for him because in Roman prisons they don't essentially do anything for that. So he's saying this amidst being in prison probably needing money to do ministry to an extent, but he's saying, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think I would have been fine either way, which is interesting as he's writing a thank you letter. But the reason that Paul can do this is because he knows that he has everything he needs. And that's the big idea we have for tonight. The big idea is that you have everything you need. That's our big idea for, uh, for tonight for us as well, that you have everything that you need. 
And the problem here, though, is that we have an ever-increasing appetite. We probably ask this question, like, do we actually have everything that we need? Like, you might be asking yourself, well, what if, what if I go to college and I change my major or I don't do well enough in classes and my parents stop supporting me? What if my girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up with me? What do I do if I don't get the internship or the job that I've been hoping for? Is it still true that I have everything I need? And those are valid questions to be asking. But we live in a culture that says, well, actually, if you work hard enough, you're going to probably get this life that you want. And what culture will say is you should seek after more money or more sexual partners or more muscle or more likes, more friends, more adventures, more dr drunken nights. And the motto of the age is if it makes you happy, go for it. But the issue that we run into is that we're never satisfied with more and we're never satisfied with getting the things that we want. There's actually endless examples of people who are chasing after more and are never satisfied. We see that Tom Brady won seven Super Bowls, retired, and then he said, hey, I actually have some unfinished business to tend to, and he came out of retirement, even though he's won more Super Bowls than any other team has as a whole franchise. Uh, Warren Buffett, he's 92, he has a $112 billion net worth, and he's still trying to find the next best investment, he's still writing letters every year to try and help people make money the way he has. Another story is back in 1930, this economist, John Maynard Keynes, he predicted that the working week would be 15 hours by 2030 because the prediction was that the standard of living was going to be four to eight times higher than what it was when he lived in 1930. And you're probably all thinking to yourself, that's not the case for you. You probably had pretty tough summers of working a bunch. Your parents probably work a ton. I think that's just not the case, and the prediction was wrong. And the reason for this is because things with expiration dates actually don't satisfy our souls, right? Like this gallon of milk that's tucked away in your fridge is going to expire and spoil if you give enough time. Similarly, your internship, that has an end. Your relationship has an expiration date. The joy of winning a Super Bowl wears off. Your major or your career path can only give you so much meaning. And even if you amass tons of money, it doesn't mean anything if you're dead. And so if we think about it, we actually do have very high standards for what satisfies our souls. And having everything you need is a unique and absurd Christian perspective. My hope is that by the end of tonight, you would believe that you have everything you need because you do if you're a Christian. So let's jump in and see how Philippians fills us in on this big idea. We're going to be in Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Philippians 4.10. Yeah, up on the screen there too. So Philippians 4.10 starts like this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And so Paul is using this tactic, which is called duality. So he does this often in his letters, and what he's doing is he's comparing like two extremes or two ends of the spectrum to prove his point. And here he's comparing and contrasting a little versus a lot, or being in need or having abundance being hungry or full, 
And either way, Paul is making the conclusion that he can do all things through Christ. So here, Paul is letting the Philippians know that his joy is not based on the gifts that the Philippians can give him, but in the Lord. And the secret of being content is what he says in verse 13, which is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that leads us to our first point. Our first point for the night is contentment is wanting what you already have. Contentment is wanting what you already have. So another way Paul could have written these verses is, I can abound in him who strengthens me, but I can also be brought low in him who strengthens me. I can be full in him who strengthens me, and I can be hungry in him who strengthens me. I can be free in him who strengthens me, and I can be in prison in him who strengthens me. Either way, it is through Christ, but we also see it's this interesting balance of it also being your actions. He's saying, I can do all things, and this is implying that we're the ones doing the thing, you know, fill in the blank. So what this verse isn't saying is it's not saying you can do all things. If you're short, you're not going to be able to dunk a basketball. If you don't know how to swim and you jump in a pool, you're going to drown, right? If you're a business student and you think you can take a physics test and do a good job, you're going to fail the test. But you're saying, like, Jacob, we just read I can do all things through Christ, right? So that means you can do all things. And I think that's completely wrong. I think that the verse gets often taken out of context. This is not a verse of personal empowerment. But don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God isn't powerful enough to do anything he wants because he can. But this verse implies that we're working with God in a crazy way. It says, I can do all things through Christ. So I'm the one doing the thing, but it's Christ's strength in me. Our actions and our circumstances and the way God has created us, even the limitations that we have, work in harmony with Christ's strength. It's not just our power working, but it's also not just Christ working without us. And so you always have to keep the context of, the ver- of what comes before in mind. Just like Paul said, whether you're full or hungry, whether you're in abundance or need, we could take this into our context. Like whether you get an A on a test or whether you fail the test, whether that girl or guy actually likes you back or not, whether you're going to be single till you're 20, 40, 60, or married when you're 20, 40, or 60, whether you make $20 a year in some small village in the middle of nowhere, or you make $20 million in the nicest place in America, whether you're six feet tall, five feet tall, three feet tall, doesn't matter. Your joy can't be in your circumstances. And the question that this is asking is like, what are you putting your contentment in? And I, I think the what we're seeing here is like our problem actually isn't that we're uncontent or discontent people, but it's actually that we're putting our contentment in the wrong things. We're putting our contentment in things that have an expiration date and that will fail us. The foundation of unwavering contentment is Christ. Jesus is the object of Paul's contentment. What needs to be true for us is that our circumstances don't dictate our joy, but Christ dictates our joy. We can be content because amidst these changing circumstances or even these failing things that we put in this lofty position in our lives, we have an immovable, we have a faithful, and we have an eternal God who loves us. The love and strength of Jesus never leaves us and it never expires. So let's continue on in verse 15 and see uh, this idea of having everything we need continue. So Philippians 4, 15 goes as follows. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. 
Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here we see that the Philippians have partnered with Paul for a pretty long time. Paul received everything that the Philippians had gave him, so Epaphroditus brought these gifts and supplied him in that way. But what's interesting is that Paul isn't most concerned with the money that he's receiving, but he's actually drawing the attention to the profit that is being received to the Philippians. That's what brings us to our second point, is that generosity is giving what has been given to you. Generosity is giving what has been given to you. So when Paul receives the Philippians' money, he does two things. First, in verse 10, going back a little bit, he rejoices in God for receiving the gift. Instead of saying, thank you, Philippians, for the gift you gave me, he rejoices in God. And you're probably asking yourself the question, well, how can you rejoice in God if the Philippians are the one that actually gave him the gift? And what we have to see is that the money actually doesn't belong to the Philippians, but it belongs to God. And the first thing that we need to know about this is that God gives us what we have. And on top of that, he calls us to be a steward of what we have and what he's given us. And so a steward is someone that just manages wealth on someone else's behalf. And this means that like, we don't own the wealth or gifts that God has given us, but it is our responsibility, and same is true for the Philippians. And what we see here is that God entrusts us with good gifts in order to, one, meet our needs, but also primarily to bring himself glory. We see that God entrusts us with good gifts in order to meet our needs, but primarily to bring himself glory. And the second thing that Paul says when he receives the money from the Philippians is that, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. And this is like this paradox of giving that we run into. You would think that the, the person that's receiving is actually getting more, but what Paul is saying is that the giver receives more than the one receiving the gift. And what Paul is essentially saying is like, hey, I'm receiving the short end of the stick by being the one that's the receiver and not the giver. It's a paradox. So you're probably all asking this question of, well, what is the giver getting if they're the one giving? Like giving implies that you're giving something away, you're losing something to some extent. But Paul is saying actually, no, there's something that's increasing to your account. If we look throughout scripture, I think what we see is that the giver receives a blessing in the form of hope. First Timothy talks about those who give store up, tre- uh, store up treasures for themselves in heaven. And conversely, Jesus says in Matthew 6, not to store up earthly treasures for yourself. So what does this mean? What's, what's all this treasure talk? And uh, I read an article, and John Piper put it this way, that you'll have greater taste buds for Jesus when you give. Generosity stirs our heart towards heaven and actually makes us richer in heaven. If I'm being like, completely honest, I have no idea what treasures in heaven entails, what that means. I don't know if it's like a crown you wear around or like, I don't know. It's probably like what you want it, honestly. Like, just think about like, good stuff that you like, but it's going to be even better in heaven. Even though I don't really know like, what it's saying, I think what we can know is true is that the riches that God has in store for us will far outweigh whatever we can get for ourselves on earth because we know God is a good gift giver. And so Paul here is 
letting the Philippians know that his joy is not based on the gifts that the Philippians gave him, but his joy is actually in the Lord. Similar, similarly to circumstances, right? Like his joy is in, his, in the circumstances, but his joy is in the Lord. And this is true for us even in America. Like I think we live in abundance often. We have everything we think we want. We have everything we need. But the problem is that we, st- we see people that are still unhappy. We still see people that are depressed. We still see people that are seeking to build an empire that will ultimately collapse. Like People are chasing after these things, or people have the opportunity to live what we think could be a good and fulfilling life, yet that's not the case when we actually look around ourselves. And when we live like we can get everything for ourselves, like we often do as Americans, we actually come up empty-handed. However, when we trust that God gives us everything we need and live in that truth, we can actually be joyful and generous when we acknowledge the wealth and the giftings and the easy life for a lot of us that God has given us. And it's not because we earned it, but it's because God freely gave it to us. So that kind of prompts this question of, are you ready to share what God has given you? Right? It's like, if we believe in this idea of stewardship, if we believe that God has given us what we have, are we ready to share in the way that God has shared with us? And here's a very clear application to this point. Give some of your money to the church. I know a lot of us out here think we don't have a lot of money, but I think generosity can start by giving back to God what he has given to us. I think giving to your local church is a great way to practice this, and it's not the only way you can be generous, but I think it's a great first step to a life of generosity. So you're probably asking, how much should you give? Or, you know, essentially, what what am I giving? And I think a very clear way to start is with what the Bible calls a tithe. It's 10% of your money that you earn. And so what you can do is, at the end of each month, total up what you made. That can be the check that you write to your local church. And I want to say this bluntly, but lovingly, Dave Ramsey has this great quote that I'm just going to read, and it comes off pretty harsh. He's a harsh guy, if you know him, but I'm going to read it, and hopefully it convicts you the way it's convicted me. If you suck at living off of 90% of your income, you also suck at living off 100% of your income, right? It's like, is 10% really going to make a big difference at the end of the day? The problem probably isn't you don't have enough, but the problem actually is the stewardship of what you've been given. It's convicting, it hurts a little bit, but it's probably true. Now, I could go on like this huge rant of, well, should you actually give 10%? Like, now that, you know, that was maybe more for the Israelites, or like, what about the summer teams that are going? Like, can I give to them as well? Or should, you know, there's all these nuances of giving and generosity that you could throw yourself into. And if you want my honest opinion, I probably have an opinion on all those questions. So if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. But that's not for this sermon. Uh, I can probably give you an answer if that's what you're looking for. But I think the point is if you're feeling the tug to be generous, here's a very clear guideline on how you can start. Give 10% of the income that you earn each month to the local church that you attend. I'd encourage you guys to start there and just see the kind of generous heart that God would begin to create and stir up in you. And if we have everything we need, we can freely give. All right, so to continue on, Uh, We're going to move on to our next point, but before we get to that, I'm going to reread this entire passage that we had for the night, 
but it's going to be using what's called the message commentary. So for some context, the message is written by this guy, Eugene Peterson, and he essentially wanted to make scripture more conversational. So as I go through and read this uh, commentary on these verses or like a rewriting of the verses, um, think about it like you're sitting in a coffee shop with a friend. Like that's the goal of uh, the way Eugene Peterson is writing this. And a quick disclaimer, uh, we probably wouldn't say this is like a translation of scripture, so this wouldn't be like your daily reading, but it is helpful to be used alongside scripture. So Eugene Peterson translated as follows. I'm glad in God far happier than you would ever guess. Happy that you're again showing such strong concern for me. Not that you ever quit praying and thinking about me, you just had no chance to show it. Actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much and with much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I don't mean that your help didn't mean a lot to me. It did. It was a beautiful thing that you came alongside me in my troubles. You Philippians well know, and you can be sure I'll never forget, that when I first left Macedonia province, venturing out with the message, not one church helped out in the give and take of this work except you. You were the only one. Even while I was in Thessalonica, you helped, and not only once, but twice. Not that I'm looking for handouts, but I do want you to experience the blessing that issues from generosity. And now I have it all, and keep getting more. The gifts you sent with Epaphroditus were more than enough, like a sweet-smelling sacrifice, roasting on the altar, filling the air with fragrance, pleasing God to no end. You can be sure that God will take care of everything you need, his generosity exceeding even yours and the glory that pours from Jesus. Our God and Father abounds in glory that just pours out into eternity. Yes, give our regards to every follower of Jesus you meet. Our friends here, they say hello. All the Christians here, especially the believers who work in the palace of Caesar, want to be remembered to you. Receive and experience the amazing grace of the Master Jesus Christ deep, deep within yourselves. Doesn't it just sound here like Paul and the Philippians have this like great friendship going on for themselves? I think... It's maybe not the most clear in this, so I want to go through and just let's refresh on some of those instances of friendship that we see throughout Philippians. So in the first chapter, Paul thanks God when he remembers the Philippians. He says the Philippians are in his heart and they're partners in grace. He also calls them brothers and sisters. In chapter two, we see that he actually does call them dear friends. Paul wants to encourage the Philippians by sending Timothy out to them, but then Paul also feels the support of the Philippians when they send Epaphroditus to him. In chapter 3, Paul keeps using this brother and sister language, and he actually tears up as he's writing and as he's thinking about his friends in Philippi. And finally, in chapter 4, we see that he continues to know the Philippians by name. He often calls out the people he knows by name, and he desires that truth and peace be evident among them. And ultimately, we see that the Philippians sent him money to support his ministry, but he's happy either way. Like, he's just honestly happy to be their friend and happy in the Lord. So when I read Philippians, it's hard not to notice this underlying theme of friendship. And that leads us to our last point, that friendship is decisively loving others the way Jesus loves you. Friendship is decisively loving others the way Jesus loves you. 
And Paul and the Philippians actually can be good friends because they're following the example that they have in Christ. And so I think if we want to learn how to be good friends, we need to ask ourselves, like, how does Jesus love us? And there's plenty of ways that Jesus loves us. And I'm actually just going to list out some examples from Jesus' earthly ministry. And I'd hope that you'd see the immense love that Jesus has for you. Jesus shows his love for us in the way that he heals people and fed people. He actually cares for the physical needs of you. Jesus shows his love for us in the way that he likes people. Like he actually just enjoyed spending time with the disciples. And same goes for you, that Jesus wants to spend time with you, wants to be around you. Jesus shows his love for us in the way that he casts out demons. He cares about our spiritual health. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son and shows that love is unconditional. Jesus also shows us that love involves peace and it involves forgiveness and truth. And he shows us that in his teachings and in in his example. But the ultimate example of love actually rests in the crucifixion of Jesus where he died for us out of his love for us. And I think these examples actually challenge us to love our friends the way Christ did. But I think what they actually show us more importantly is that when our friends do fail us or when we get lonely or when we feel um, like an outsider, Jesus is actually our friend first and has pursued friendship with us. He's the one relationship that we actually need. And this is the God that we worship, right? This is a God that initiates and provides. God loved us before we loved him. God gave us good gifts before we could give him praise. And God befriends us while we are his enemies. Again, God knows exactly what we need and he offers it to us. Romans 5.8 says this, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So knowing the sins and wrongs that you have committed, the sins and wrongs that you probably actually committed this summer, the sins and wrongs going into the semester, the sins and wrongs for the rest of your life, knowing that that would happen, Christ still laid down his life for you. He knows exactly what we need, and that is grace. And you receive grace by putting your faith in Jesus. So I'm sure a lot of us are nervous for what's ahead. We're probably heading into August with a lot of uncertainty. I know I am moving into a new place, another year of the same job, but with a lot of new people coming into town. There can just be a lot to worry about and a lot to be nervous about. And I think we're probably all asking ourselves some questions like this, like, how am I going to make friends if everyone's going out to the bars and I don't want to? Or maybe how am I going to make friends with all this social anxiety that I face? Maybe you're asking yourself, how am I going to get along with my roommates? Like, what's this new house or apartment or dorm going to be like? Are we going to be able to be friends, live together in the same place, or will we just have a falling out? Maybe you're asking yourself if you even like your major, you're finding a lack of purpose in what you're studying, or just no joy in your class, classes at all. Maybe for the SALT leaders out there, you're probably asking yourself, like, what's going to happen if no one shows up to my C group? Maybe you're not even going to college and you're thinking you might miss out on something big by not having the college experience like everyone else. Probably one of the questions that all of us are asking too is like, will I even have the money to support myself through the end of this fall? Will I even be able to make it financially through the semester? I think we often doubt that God will supply our every need. Our doubt can look a lot of ways. It can look like believing that one, God doesn't care about our needs. Our doubt can often look like thinking that we know better than God, or even our doubt can look like waiting around, hoping that God would get on the same page as us. But if God is going to provide our every need, this implies a massively overlooked truth about God. 
And the truth is this, is that God knows what we need even more than we do. God knows what we need more than we do. And I think that's hard to believe because it's like, we're the ones that experience the hunger. We're the ones that experience the loneliness. We're the ones that experience the muscle fatigue, the anxiety, the lack of concentration. But what remains true is that God knows our needs better than we do, regardless of how we felt. And we see that in the life of Jesus. Like Jesus lived the things that we lived, and he knows our needs because he actually lived through the sufferings and the trials and the pains that we have in our life. So a little thought experiment here. Like what if you took 24 hours sometime this week and you just stopped your hard work, you enjoyed your relationship with God, you thought about not what you could earn, but what God has actually provided to you. And what if you actually started doing that like every week, like 24 hours every week, you started doing this thing. What's funny about that is that's actually in the Bible. It's called a Sabbath. The Sabbath is following the rhythm of creation by working six days followed by one day of rest. And the heart of the Sabbath is this. The heart of the Sabbath is rest, peace, and receiving. And what it does, it invites this posture of trusting that God will provide for you. And so this morning we were kind of talking about this application and how it really goes into this big idea of that God provides everything for us. And Ryan brought up this good quote by Tim Keller, so I'm going to read that for you. And it's about the Sabbath. It says this. To practice the Sabbath is a disciplined and faithful way to remember that you are not the one who keeps the world running, you're not the one who provides for your family, and you're not even the one who keeps your work projects moving forward. So I kind of tease up this question of how do you think the Sabbath would affect your life? Would you become more thankful because you can actually finally stop and see what you have in your life isn't a result of your hard work, but actually is a result of God's grace and God's goodness to you? Would you become generous because you'd actually spend more time thinking about how God provides for you and want to reflect that in the way that you live? Maybe the self-entitlement that you have would be killed because you would see that not everything is mine, but it actually belongs to God. Maybe you would actually, for the first time, be able to start enjoying the good things in our life instead of begrudgingly doing the things just because we have to, just enjoying what, the God, has, what God has set in front of us. And I think abiding by a Sabbath is the perfect way to live as if God will supply our every need. And it's true, God does give us everything we need. So when you're short on rent for the month, you can probably remember God supplies your every need. When you forget to do an assignment that was due that night because you have a Sabbath or you're hanging out with friends or you just got other things you're doing, God will supply your every need. When you feel like you need a boyfriend or a girlfriend, God will supply your every need. And what's true about this, though, is you actually might miss your rent payment. You might actually turn in an assignment late. You might actually never date the person that you like. What's true is that God supplies your every need. He knows your needs better than you do, and he wants to supply your needs, and he's the best at providing for your needs. And you have everything that you need when you have Jesus. So would you pray with me? Yeah, God, we, we love you, and we come to you with empty hands, Lord. Uh, the things that we have to bring to you, Lord, are worthless. Leave us empty. Leave us unsatisfied, Lord. But you're rich in mercy, God. You're, you're rich in get, being able to give us what we actually need, Lord. And we can come to you confident because you have proven time and time again 
that you fulfill your promises and that you give us exactly what we need. And you're generous, God, because you gave your son to die for us, to die for our sins, and to give us the salvation that we desperately, desperately needed. Jesus was slain like a lamb to pay our debt that we couldn't pay back. And we just cry out like, Jesus, we need you, and that is enough. I want that to be enough for me, and I want that to be enough for all of us, Lord. So as we go into our nights and our semesters, Lord, I pray that we would know that you are enough, Lord, because you are enough, and that's true. We can never say that too many times, Lord. You are enough. It's in your name we pray. Amen.